Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, we are well into May now. Seven days, Mark. June, even. June. Yeah. Oh my God, June. <laughs> and, uh, our shtick, our date shtick. I know. Uh, you should just keep sh- that. Keep it, keep it, keep if it. Only it was a sh- shtick, if only it was just, a shtick. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, I think we have a, uh, it's me, Andy, and Tammy today and we have an episode for you about two things that are going on um i think they're a little bit linked but you know i think they will be two separate ish conversations the first is what's happening in hong kong um and uh specifically around what happened on the fourth which was the uh which was the anniversary of tiananmen right and usually there are some sorts of remembrances throughout Hong Kong. And this year it seemed like, you know, there was, I don't know, it was, uh, how would you describe like what, what actually happened, Tammy or Andy? Because, um, you know, it seems like there are a lot of different groups saying different things and that's part of what makes this interesting to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like it was spread out. So that it's technically or typically centered in one park called Victoria Park in the middle of the city. And it seems like, uh, for the second year in a row, the police cordoned it off under COVID pretenses, right? But it's obviously about political as well. Um, and there's reporting suggesting that people like found workarounds. Uh, like they like the main thing is instead of like candles these days, they use mobile phones, right? Uh, as yeah. candlelight vigils. But then they just like walked around the streets instead of gathering in one place, and the police. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's one article I, you know, we, we looked at where there's like different people have different takes. Did the police restrict it or were they lenient? You know, mm-hmm. and there was like a line being straddled by all sides. Okay, but why why is this important? Like, uh, why 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 is this remembrance important? It seems like all around the world there are types of things that happen usually that don't happen now because of COVID and mm-hmm. uh, Hong Kong. You know, one of the great success stories of COVID prevention, I think it, I saw it was something like 20% of their population is vaccinated and that's about it. And so it's not like it is, um, I don't know, here in some places where like 70, 80% of the population is vaccinated and they have low positivity rates and maybe it's okay to have, you know, some sort of party in the park or remembrance in the park or whatever, right? Um, well, why why was this important, Tammy or Andy? Either one of you, fire away. <laughs> I mean, I think it was impossible not to read the situation in relation to 2019 and to Hong Kong protests for democracy in recent years. And so, you know, this whole feeling of is Hong Kong as it was anymore, you know, is has China fully taken over to the point where even this kind of, you know, symbolic gesture every year cannot take place. Um, it just seemed to carry to be very weighed down with with that meaning this year. Yeah, and in particular, you know, the culmination of the protests in 19 was these national security laws passed the end of last summer. Yeah. So I think, and those security laws are, uh, they're very draconian, and on paper, they seem to really restrict right, political liberties in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. And But the question is, you know, how will they be enforced? And so this was kind of a test, a, a, I guess a battleground, a test to see how it would be enforced. Um in the sense that we haven't really seen, you know, in like 2019, there were these spectacular videos of police basically confronting protesters and 
lots of like like street violence back and forth um and uh so i guess the question was was that going to happen again will that happen again under this in this new like post it's called ns like national security laws post nsl world it seems like um the police in hong kong they are sensitive to pr like it kind of seems like in 2019 they did not give a shit but i think there has been a sort of directive like not to like thrash people on the street um, okay well let, let let yeah let's set the scene a little yeah. bit bef- so that people have a sense of what happened which is that um you know generally what happens is that thousands and thousands of people pack into P- victoria park which is a as andy said it's a park in hong kong have you ever been there i've been there um i think so it's like the central part of hong kong island which is right like the right. commercial area I've never yeah been. so it's not on the kowloon side it's 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 interesting it's like i went on a sunday i think that's when um the sort of ofw housekeeping mm-hmm. for domestic workers uh, have their picnics and um yeah it was totally fascinating because uh, it was like suddenly the entire park had been you know mostly filipino women who were sort of meeting up and they had all these because they spend so much time around each other and because there's so much, uh, you know, it's mostly women there who are doing the domestic work, all sorts of very fascinating gender things going on, right, in terms of uh, dress, in terms of expression. And I don't know, I felt like uh, it would be something that I'm sure that many, many people at like Hong Kong University or something like that have done studies about yeah. it. But it was uh, yeah. It was like a very cool thing to see. And so within that park, uh, there are usually thousands of people who go for this remembrance. And um, this time, basically, there was intimidation tactics. Like, uh, it seems like uh, they rolled up a water cannon and two tanks um, close to that to that area. Um, and that, uh, you know, that, that nobody really knew what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But like Andy said, that instead what happened is that little protests or little vigils sort of sprouted up all throughout the city um and so what you have is sort of like this i don't know if the word decentralized is the right word or not but it seems like uh they you know they tried to do it in their way outside of doing a central thing that was met with central force um yeah and and uh i don't know like i think that we should look at it in in a couple ways right like uh the first thing that i want to know is like you know like I don't know, like, is it, does it mean anything that, like, last year it's, or two years ago, it seemed like uh, people were willing to fight, right? Like, I think two years ago, they were like, fuck you, we're going there anyway, you know? Yeah. And now it seems like this was like a, you can see it as like a victory of, uh, you know, people saying like, oh, well, we're going to do it anyway. But at the same time, it's sort of like a compromise, right, in itself. So, um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? I think my, I mean, I haven't followed it super closely. I think the NSL really has created a political chill um, in Hong Kong. Their people are, people are not really sure what to make of anything. Like Tammy shared an article where there was interviews with Hong Kong university faculty, which is like, you know, a different world. It's the university. Mm-hmm. But there was like a meeting where people were asking the university, like, are our political freedoms going to be guaranteed in the university? I was like, yeah, well, like, we'll, we'll see, which is, you know, basically saying no. Yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, they've basically like outlawed all sorts of political expression um, in Hong mm-hmm. Kong with all sorts of draconian um, punishments. I know a lot of Hong Kong diaspora who have talked about not being sure if they can ever go back. Uh, there are a lot of dissidents who have fled Hong Kong and yeah. uh, uh, right, like famously have fled Hong Kong and we don't know where they are. 
Um, so it's, yeah, I think there's a definite political chill. I think that, um, you know, last summer, it seems my, my memory of what, what I read was that, you know, they put up these sort of, I don't know, like, uh, what are they, like rope cordons, right? Like, like on the side of like basketball course in the championship parade, like, like they can easily get around these things and get right. into the park. And that's what they had this year. They had much more like yeah. barriers to get much into more police, park. like thousands of police were mobilized. So. Yeah, it seems like a pretty strict cordon of a kind that they hadn't imposed previously. Yeah, what what's the significance of Tiananmen to people in Hong Kong? You know, I think that like you know, yeah. I don't know, from a totally uneducated or whatever. I think very many people would be like, well, I don't know. One was in China, the other was in Hong <laughs> Kong, right? right? So like, why why does that matter so much? Like, why why does this remembrance hold so much uh, symbolic significance? Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about this in the sense that I think in the 80s, what happened in Tiananmen, it was, first off, it was major world news. It was happening live on all the news channels around the world at a time before the internet, right? I think there was a sense, at least I can tell from like talking to family and friends, that all, how do I put this? All, Taiwanese and Hong Kong people and Chinese diaspora living overseas identified with Beijing and the students in Beijing in the sense that like this is like, this is our people, this is our generation you know, our homeland, motherland, et cetera. It feels to me like those ties are much weaker now. And during 2019, there was a lot of talk or, or about how Hong Kongers are not Chinese and how Chinese people are not Hong Kongers. And I think the same sentiment exists in Taiwan mutually. So um, I think that's a good question. If Tiananmen happened today, it wouldn't be perceived by people in Hong Kong or Taiwan or overseas communities necessarily as like our people, you know, um, I, that's this is, that's just my sense, and I, this makes me think. But they have, there has been this vigil in Hong Kong for Tiananmen every year since. I think it's holding out for the possibility of potential of future democratic, um, mm -hmm. you know, openings in China. Um, well, it and, seems like also yeah, that no. I mean, even though the, the sort of you know the distance in time is greater to the point where like the identification it may not be as strong, like in terms of direct family ties, etc. That it's become though more of a symbol of like China's authoritarianism. And right. so it's a sort of hand, a shortcut, you know, in terms of articulating the way that Taiwanese and Hong Kong people feel towards yeah. the regime right now. Well, what, what's the PRC's general attitude towards Tiananmen then? Cause I know no, that like, I, no, I know that there's a lot no of suppression of it, but wasn't there at some point some sort of official, like, Hey, our bad type of statement that came <laughs> no, out about it. It was I don't think so. maybe I don't know about it. Yeah, maybe incidentally, but it was immediately suppressed. There was no talk of it. There's a video, uh, I don't know, maybe I can put in show notes on Vimeo where someone um, went to like university campuses in Beijing on June 4th and asked them like, do you know what today is? And half of the people legitimately did not know what the day they was. They weren't and just covering. Yeah, they were just like, what are you talking about? Um, get this camera out of my face. And the <laughs> other half were like, I know what you're talking about, but I can't talk to you. And they would just walk mm -hmm. away. Um, now, I don't know how much the internet and, v and like VPNs has changed that, I think. But I mean, I think everyone knows, right? Everyone knows, but it's never discussed publicly, um, yeah. as far as I could tell. Um, uh, you know, in your, in your living room, you could talk about with your family and friends and obviously people who travel abroad and come back, you know. Um, yeah. I think, the, I mean, the, the, what was, the other thing I was going to say was I think um, – there, there is an interesting difference, I think, in the way that Tiananmen gets processed in the rest of the world. 
obviously, like in the United States and Europe is like a symbol of authoritarian China and so on. I do think kind of like what Tammy was saying, it, for people in Hong Kong, Tiananmen is, I almost wonder if it's like this, what's this word? Um, it's a pretext for them to talk about 2019 and to talk about the last 10 years. Yeah. And they aren't really like interested in like teachings on 1989, you know, like the way that, <laughs> the way that these articles come out in like Western media, it's like, remember 1989 when this was happening? Like, I think they're yeah. more interested in using this as a pretext to protest. Or like synecdoche rather than pretext maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I think, I think for the young people, it's right. So they're much more concerned with their present. It's more urgent, I guess, than mm-hmm. for a lot of, um, you know, like journalists in America who are just like, uh, who, where it doesn't feel that urgent. I don't even know if Tiananmen is like, a, I've, I was thinking about it because obviously, you know, being my age around 41, I was like, uh, I do remember it happening and it being extremely arresting, but I'm not oh, sure. I do if remember the, it. Oh. Yeah, I yeah. Know. I mean, I was nine, so Andy, I Ritchie should remember young, it. Jane, I remember it. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, but I think it's not necessarily even about China. It's like one of these things that's just about dissent, right? Like the, and that's sort of how most things get processed now, where they get excerpted from their political actual meaning, right? And that the yeah. politics of it don't matter. What matters is that it becomes an image of opposition. And obviously the central image of T- Tiananmen, which is a man standing okay. in front of the tank, like becomes sort of what it's about, right? It's about being defiant and standing up for, self, for yourself. It becomes kind of like a Nike commercial, right? <laughs> like it's sort of the Nike yeah. commercialification or the Apple. Like remember when Apple did all that stuff with Think Different and then it's just like a bunch of black and white photos of like, I don't know, like like Shirley Chisholm or something like that. Or, or, oh or, um, or like Albert Einstein and Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah, and then it becomes, that. right, like that sort of process I think has happened worldwide to Tiananmen where yeah. it becomes not necessarily about China even. Yeah. It's just like, can you stand up to tanks? Well, right? it's also and, part of 89 and the memory and reconstruction of 89 right. and what that, you know, and so we think about it also with regards to Berlin, I think. You know, oh, the, I didn't even know that that the, was the same year. <laughs> well, not, yeah, 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 89. Yeah. The other interesting contrast, someone pointed out to me recently, um, uh, the writer waiting in Singapore, she was pointing out that the U.S. Okay, so in Asia, there was a real like conversation among students looking across South Korea and the Gwangju totally. uprising in 1980, and student-led protests for democracy there. And oh, there was geez. something happening in Taiwan with Kaohsiung in the late 70s. And for people living in Asia at the time, they were like, "These are all connected. This is all about democratization." Mm-hmm. The United States slash Western coverage of these events are radically different, right? Because South Korea is an ally. And then China's an enemy. Yeah. So the Guangzhou uprising is portrayed as like uh, rabble rousers threatening stability um, overseas. And then the Tiananmen students in Beijing are portrayed as freedom loving, you know, dissidents who have universal values in a way that is. Yeah, for sure. Yes. And when I, when I, when, when I was told this, like, that makes sense. And it also is like completely, you know, nothing I'd ever thought of before. Because we're always talking about, about these things from the United States perspective, mm-hmm. but you know, I think at the time it, it, they're probably, yeah, I think I think people in Asia were like, these are all connected. This is all about democratization yeah. in Asia, um, and it gets and so that that reduction of Tiananmen Jay that you're talking about to like individuals in a very apolitical way, 
speaking for freedom, right, is kind of speaks to the the United States attempt to to make this about um, like naturally, of course, like like the authoritarian state, individual right, freedom. Right. And there's no I mean, and communist like individual the in the potential of the individual to be free in the way that Americans are free, right? And there's a whole visual, I think about this all the time, there's a whole visual lexicon of this stuff, right? It's like the monk burning himself and uh, self-immolating and, uh, and I think it was Ho Chi Minh City or yeah, Saigon, right? Um, maybe it was Hanoi, but, uh, and then there's Tiananmen and there's, you know, Jesse Owens raising the fist and that we've created this sort of, you know, visual lexicon of things that actually are completely excerpted from the politics of the time. I don't know what they serve outside of commercial interests, right? Where you put them in every single commercial <laughs> or like, you know, like before a sporting event, um, they, they do those pump up things where they're like, you know, like 30 years ago, you know, the, the Hawks met the Knicks and one of the great, it's, it's like serves for stuff. I mean, I don't know if that one specifically, <laughs> would be it, but, but it's something like that. Um, and I don't know, like, is Tiananmen, has it been reduced in, I guess the only point I'm, I'm asking yeah. is that in Hong Kong itself, is that what mm -hmm. Tiananmen means to a large portion of the population? Or is it, I would imagine that it is a little bit more specific, but I don't know. I mean, you know, it's been, what, 30, yeah. 32 years. I highly doubt people, the average person in Hong Kong knows the specific details of Tiananmen or the names of the student activists. The other thing that is like, um, yeah, I mean, Tiananmen, the memory of Tiananmen is really carried forward by the diaspora in the sense of in Taiwan and Hong Kong. And a lot of the student dissidents have ever since lived in the United States, lived in Taiwan. That's where they are. That's where the kind of memory is kept alive. And um, but I guess, you know, there's this natural or not unexpected process, which is, you know, if they're disconnected from China, right, the memory is going to kind of wither and die over time i think it's it's mostly a symbol like the the phrase six four is a is like a set like june 4th is a set phrase in yeah. mandarin that people know what you're talking about when you talk about june 4th but yeah it's like it's june 4th it's not there isn't uh it doesn't feel alive i don't think anymore i think it's much more about commemoration or or, or a pretext to really talk about contemporary concerns with um with the PRC and, and Xi Jinping and, you know, the yeah. national security laws. But that seems generally true for lots of historical events, I would say, you know, especially yeah. the ones that, um, I mean, for instance, I think there are all of these ways in which different kind of landmarks of Korean democratization, like the one that Wei was talking to you about, Andy, yeah. you know, yeah. become sort of, um, yeah, just become kind of uh, reduced to a particular set of like, you know, facts or images or tropes, but I don't necessarily know if that's like a bad thing or wrong or, you know, I don't know if there's a kind of right is or that, wrong way to feel about it. Is Gwangju, is it memorialized and like talked about all the time in well, South I mean, Korea? It's, Gwangju is quite hard to, I mean, I, I agree with ways, um, you know, feeling that East Asians kind of see these sets of events as like part of like a larger regional democratization, but it's hard to compare something like Gwangju to Tianmen because Gwangju didn't, there wasn't that much sunlight on Gwangju during the commune and the uprising period. And a lot of it was kind of excavated afterwards through like international media, you know, and so it had this sort of boomeranging effect. And, and also for Gwangju, I mean, because the U.S. 
you know, the U.S. arguably had direct knowledge of a lot of the the crackdown that was committed by the Korean military, and so, um, you know, the U.S. had an interest in suppressing that information yeah. from any the authorized, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. It's debated, but yeah, there is like at least <laughs> indirect knowledge, if not direct knowledge. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think like. Kwangju fits into a certain, especially like left-wing version of a kind of like democratization, linear democratization. But even like, because um, that that's if that sets the opens the possibility for any elections in South Korea, wouldn't that be like praised by like liberals and conservatives and everyone? Um, no. Okay. <laughs> because I think like the conservative and maybe even liberal story in Korea about the way that Korea got free uh-huh. doesn't need to include Kwangju, but on the left it does. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I think I wonder if the people who participate in this protest this week in Hong Kong, if they are protest participating because they feel like some identity with the Tiananmen protesters who are Chinese, like mainland Chinese students, mm-hmm. or if it is just this sort of like we're all commonly oppressed by the Chinese government. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like conversations with lots of Hong Kong um activists I've talked to are like it's a real it's a real issue that in Hong Kong they they begin to have like racist ideas towards mainland China and they they have begun yeah. to see Hong Kong as um it's irredeemably separated from China and in, in their minds and so on so um yeah I think that's that's interesting like if that if, if a if there's been like a splintering in the mm-hmm. sense of solidarity and identity yeah. among Hong Kong Taiwanese and mainland Chinese some of the uh some of the analysis of this moment uh was about how there was a sense that maybe the uh the prc was you know a little bit more wary of doing a big show of power and suppression here right that they had Mm -hmm. learned from last year or 2019 and how you know like the sort of image that they were projecting there now my question is really just like uh much more broad than that which is that is the prc let's say that they're you know that they are worried about these types of things how much of it is actually just because of this coronavirus stuff you know like right now it seems like lab leak theory things like that are coming out i don't think that the next nine months are going to be particularly kind to the prc as more of this stuff comes out you know i think that there's going to be a lot of information that's put out there that's going to make them look very bad and make every country in the world angry you know, yeah. like how, how much of it is them just being like, I don't know, guys, <laughs> like, let's not <laughs> let's not let's not uh, score some own goals here. <laughs> you know, we're, we're about we're about to have an assault on us. Um, how, how much do you think is them being worried about that? I think their basic strategy is in the, in the very loud forms of like the Global Times, they will be very forceful in denying or denouncing and like. Like when they get criticized for Hong Kong or Xinjiang, they are very much like equivocating and denial, denying and all that stuff. I think on a practical everyday level, I remember there was an article that came out in 2019 that was like, you know, sources, sources say, like talks with Chinese pe- intelligence people would say something like their goal was to just kind of let the protest naturally die out, starve them out, don't do another tank man. I mean, tank man was actually, this is relevant. They were like, let's not do another tank man <laughs> in, in Hong Kong. Let's let them... Uh, let's let it die out naturally. I guess unbeknownst to them, right? We didn't have tanks in 2019, but we had this live footage of like police, like you know, tear gassing and beating yeah. up, and we had like gangs of like eight guys in white t-shirts showing up randomly and beating up people with sticks. Um, oh yeah, 
Uh, in the subway okay. tunnels, I yeah, 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 yeah. So that definitely happened. It's less spectacular than Tank Man, but I think yeah. they knew that this is bad PR. And they Tank Man. Not... It's funny that it's like a verb. Don't do a Tank Man. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's still a noun there, but yeah, don't Tank. Yeah, let's not Tank true. Man again. <laughs> Phrasing. Don't do it. Let's not Tank Man. Yeah. It's a good. Every government should basically avoid yeah. that. I think you know. Um, you know, yeah. nobody knows who Tank Man is. People yeah. like people try to figure out who it is. There's but... like a documentary that ran on PBS yeah, or something yeah. about it. Right, it's like a Satoshi Nakamoto, you know. <laughs> oh yeah, the, the Bitcoin founder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally same league. Well, no, there's been years and years of, of of very qualified people trying to figure out who. The, maybe the Tank Man is Satoshi Nakamoto. Know, right? How about that? What did Japan change their name? <laughs> You oh heard God. it here first. <laughs> the two most mysterious Asian-ish people. I, nobody knows if Satoshi is actually Asian. Most likely not, you know, yeah. but um, <laughs> anyway, I, I'm sorry to derail the conversation. Um, Annie, any last thoughts on this or Tammy, any last, last thoughts on this? Like, I, I think it is an interesting moment just because I think that it gives us an update on Hong Kong and maybe what the PRC yeah. is thinking and also what Hong Kong is thinking. And it seems like both are kind of like, let's kind of, you know, maybe it's time for us to like uh, take the volume down a little bit because we're still in this pandemic. Yeah. Well, I was hoping maybe Andy could finish by saying a little bit about the article he sent us, Jay, from Lausanne, uh, which is kind of about like the left critique of Tianmen memory. Yeah. I mean, if you have people have written about this, uh, this was republished in Lausanne. It was originally in, in Jacobin uh, by the uh, sociologist Zhang, Zhang Yiran, who was at Berkeley. And I think the point is, empirically like undeniable that the Tiananmen protests in 89 were really two protests or there's two groups. There were the students calling for democracy. And that's obviously the amplified version that we hear, you know, mm -hmm. in the West. And, but there are also workers who are like, um, this, these market reforms are killing us. You know, wages are low and capitalism is not helping us out. And uh, he's just pointing out that, you know, on the one hand, we have to have this corrective where it's not just about individual freedom and democracy, which can be completely, you know, assimilated into liberal, neoliberal, apolitical terms. Um, it was about um, economic protests. And I think specifically like 87, 88, 89, the years leading up to Tiananmen, mm -hmm. China experiences its first real like inflation, like boom mm -hmm. from commercialization in the 80s. So working conditions and living conditions were really going poorly in lots of China, parts of China. Uh, that would kind of anticipate the next few decades. Uh, but, you know, Yaron's point is also like, we can't just do this like super lefty thing and say it was a socialist revolution because it right. wasn't either. Yeah. And so he's just kind of trying to figure out, kind of thread the needle, trying to figure out what it was really about. And maybe if, is there a way to think about Tiananmen uh, more honestly and think about democracy and economic demands as intertwined rather than, you know, one is political, one is economic. Uh, right. So, you know, it's, it's, a, the, it's a recovery. It's a recovery. Similar to that, yeah. the uh, March on Washington for jobs and freedom. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, and then it just becomes a March on Washington. And yet saying like all Martin Luther King cared about was like uh, right. the jobs part is also like, like, come on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he was a class first reduction. <laughs> it's, well, it's important <laughs> to say that he did care about the jobs part. Right. But yeah. Um, you know, I think that sometimes there's the there's a overcorrection 
on the correction, right. but the correction is still necessary to be made. And I, you know, I actually don't think that there are that many people who would be like, yeah, I hope you know, not. <laughs> Seems uh, so silly. Martin Luther King was just, <laughs> he's a class reduction. He didn't care about race at all. <laughs> it's just about, it's just about the jobs part. Um, that's a good segue into our second topic. And look, I, I have been, we talked about this a little bit before, but I think that uh, it's important to bring it back. And I actually had been kind of ignoring it because I was hoping that it was just something that I didn't think it was going to be. But it really does seem right now and uh, that the attack around critical race theory, right? And we can put huge air quotes around it, but I don't actually need to go into like, uh, what is, is it critical race theory? Is it not critical yeah. race theory? I think most people who are intelligent and who have read understand that what is being conflated as critical race theory is just kind of like this big umbrella thing of wokeness, right? And everybody has read the tweets by like Chris Rufo, who is like sort of the ringleader of a lot of this stuff, who has been actually amazingly effective, I've got to say. Who is that? Actually, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know these tweets. Chris Rufo is a guy who, uh, I don't, he, I think he runs some sort of nonprofit or something like that, right? And he's sort of on Twitter quite a bit. But he's one of the ideological leaders against critical race theory. Mm. Right. And he's the one that sort of helps these state legislatures write up their uh, bills and things like that. Right. Like he's like the guy that goes in and educates like the GOP state oh, legislature. So is he like a Chris Kobach sort of type figure? I don't know who Chris Kobach is. <laughs> he, he's like, he's like a, a circle. Amazing, amazing comparison. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No, he's like, a, I don't know. Like he's he's a close as the right will come to like a you know, like an actual public intellectual that has a lot of influence, yeah. right? Yeah. He's not one of these sort of people who's like stuck up in a foundation like the Manhattan Institute or something. He might actually work for the Manhattan I was going to say, does he but, um, think he would be paid but, Is he a law professor? How does he, how did he hear about, or the legal whatever, law well, lawyer? Like, how does he hear about these things? Well, I don't know. I think that basically what they needed was that they needed to figure out a way to make wokeness, and I'm using, once again, giant air quotes, right, <laughs> uh, to seem conspiratorial, right? Yeah. That it's not just a bunch of people coming to certain conclusions, or it's not just individual actors who are, you know, sometimes putting through things that would make people look twice, or at least make mm-hmm. people think, like, what are they talking about? That every single sort of supposed excess of... Uh, racial justice or social justice talk is actually part of like a long lasting conspiracy that started in, you know, 1989 or whatever, 1975 or wherever you want to put the start date. And that this thing is like a virus that has been spreading through the academy, right? And that now it is not just in the academy, it's not just theoretical, it is like enacted and that the people who want to do uh, who believe in this sort of conspiracy are now trying to put it into real life. And so in that way, it sort of mirrors other conspiracies, like or the thoughts of conspiracies like QAnon or something like that, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're sort of tracing the same path that the left would argue is uh, happening with QAnon and like Marjorie Taylor Greene or something like that, right? Like, oh, it's real, it's here, and we need to take it seriously. But obviously the umbrella of what gets counted as CRT is basically anything. Right. And that's the way that these laws are. And the only reason I needed felt like we needed to talk about it is because now there are laws in several states that ban critical race theory in schools. Right. And I don't I I find that to be like horrific. Right. uh, And if you read the text of these laws, which I've gone back and done for most of the states, they're all written very vaguely. 
right? Mm -hmm. And there's no actual specific thing that's pointed to as critical race theory. But the one, there are a few commonalities that they say are actually existent. So one of them would be like, uh, you can't basically say that one group is responsible for the sins of like the people who came before them, right? So basically, <laughs> like, it's like an it's no okay, history. it's like a, it's okay to be white type of thing, <clears throat> right? Right. <laughs> There's another part that I found interesting, which is that basically, like, you can't be racist. You know, you can't say one group is better <laughs> than the other group, <laughs> which, you know, is like, seems like, sure. Yeah. You know, but their argument would be that, like, something like the 1619 Project is, right. like, a, is basically black supremacy. Right. Right. Yeah. That, that it shows that, like, one group should be treated differently than other groups. Mm -hmm. And the problem that we have here is that, you know, actually, I, I do find it to be kind of like a... I don't know, like an Ogambin or Foucauldian type of argument at this point, right? Like, which is that, like, you have this power structure that is defining things so vaguely that basically anything can happen. And what they're doing is that they're encouraging individual actors to basically call things critical race theory and, and ban it. And that's, that's been happening, right? Yeah. Uh, we see it, uh, like, I, I, David Perry, I think that's his name, right? David mm -hmm. Perry, who's like, goes, his Twitter is lollardfish, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-F-I-S-H. Um, he's been documenting a lot of these things uh, that have been happening. There are incidences in Montana, Kansas, Pennsylvania, where school administrators or college administrators or college deans or whoever basically, like, you can't teach this class anymore, right? Mm -hmm. um, there are instances where teachers are coming out and being like, uh, I teach like a diversity seminar or I teach a class about race in America and like my principal told me I can't teach it anymore because of the new CRT laws. And obviously this is outside of those instances of extreme suppression, you know, yeah. there's also a chilling effect that's going to be happening where yeah. like people in Montana or, or Kansas, Pennsylvania, some of these states are going to be like, I don't know, you know, like maybe yeah. I shouldn't teach this right. thing. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you guys think about this? Like, uh, it seems like it's a real movement. It's the type of thing that drives me crazy because, you know, as people like argue about all these insignificant things, you know, uh, around free speech or whatever like that, this seems to be an actual affront to free speech. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. <laughs> you know, a lot of it does center around the 1619 Project. A lot of it does center around the 1619 Project. Or I don't think this is actually a good faith way in which they're arguing it. But I think that what they would argue is that when the 1619 Project came out, you know, it was released with a curriculum to put it into... Right public mm -hmm. schools mm -hmm. and that like uh there needs to be a reaction to that type of indoctrination if something like the 1619 project which they see as like a racist and uh doctrinaire type of thing is going to be like inseminating the minds of the children you know like so yeah. that's their argument all right so w yeah, what do you guys sure. think about this yeah andy you should start uh i mean I think one gut reaction, well, I, th I think one thing that's interesting is like the stuff that is being outlawed, these diversity seminars, it's interesting because, you know, like we're on this podcast, we made fun of white fragility last summer. And so like, <laughs> we don't actually, I think there's a lot of the stuff that is being criticized that there are legitimate criticisms of. And I think the weird thing for us is to be like, well, are we... To worry about like if you if we were to criticize for instance the 1619 project on what we think are like really good intellectual grounds does that feed into this uh are Is you like diversity seminars, though? it seems not that it seems actually more so like, there's, curricular there's right. that and then but, but okay so 
there's the diversity seminar version of it, but I kind of feel like that's all kind of in the same family as like the history version of a lot of the sort of like liberal anti-racist pedagogy stuff, which becomes a very like simplified, in my view, sort of like a a very reductive. Uh, simplified version of like what the Sixteen Project is trying to argue, but so I, I think I one mean, thing is- uh, just to clarify before you go on, Andy, like yeah. some of it is about diversity type right, of yeah. seminar stuff. Like in Montana, the big controversy is that the superintendent of uh, public instruction, whose name is Elise Arntzen, um, sh- her problem was that there was a federal program that was saying that you, we would teach educators how to incorporate racially and culturally diverse perspectives into their lesson plans, right? And Arnson's response here is that this program is, uh, that uses the 1619 Project is actually too similar to critical race theory, and she doesn't want it taught in, in Montana schools. And so that is sort of a diversity and, and equity training type of thing, right? So yeah. it is part of it that mixes in with the curriculum because it's about yeah. it's about training teachers. And that's where a lot of this controversy actually happens, which is that, you know, there is sort of this diversity group that mm-hmm. goes around and teaches teachers, right? Like the big controversy with Richard Carranza in New York City or one of the big uh, controversies around Richard Carranza was that he was hiring out diversity consultants at pretty high prices to go tell New York City teachers uh, about white supremacy and stuff like that, right? Like, and that was, you know, yeah. one of the things that yeah. got caught up in the culture war. So um, there is part of it that so is. So the like merging, that. yeah. Also, Arnson is like a complete fucking nut job that I voted against when I was in Montana. But anyway, <laughs> there go we on. go. She's legally. Were you were you I'm legally sure, yeah. allowed to vote? In yeah, I voted okay. last year <laughs> and very vehemently against her because she's psychotic. But anyway, go on, Andy. Uh, not a carpetbagger. Uh, you are totally carpetbagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Totally. Totally. Going in to teach in, at U- UM and and then you're voting. Oh my god! All right, so uh, go ahead. yeah, I think it's it's just weird because it's like it's like the I worry that the right is framing this in a way that is like not fun for, at all for leftists to intervene into right which is i guess like you defend free speech and i think that's an obvious thing to argue for but then in a way it's kind of like overshadowing um what could be like really legitimate interesting conversations internal to you know between like diversity versus yeah. diversity discourse liberal leftist all that sort of stuff mm-hmm. uh, and so i think there's part of my brain that's sort of like uh like paralyzed like what do how do i how do i react to this in terms of (laughs) the substance of of the stuff that's being disputed um i do the other thing the other thought i had was like you know jay you mentioned like this stuff is super vague that seems like exactly what critical race theory was actually trying to point to which is like the vagueness of legal language and how it gets to be twisted in all sorts of different ways um ironically or appropriately as as I th- like my my selfish reaction is sort of like i can get around that you know like that i could i could figure a way to teach things such that you never call something crt and you just like teach whatever you want and <laughs> like there's no real enforcement mechanism for any of this stuff and my my view is but then obviously you don't want to set precedents you don't want to allow precedents and i'm sure if you taught in a more much more conservative state in at the and not at the university level where you have autonomy it is really chilling and it is really scary. Okay, well, um, you're the professor here, right? And you live in the state of Pennsylvania. And one of the things that <laughs> David Perry uh, outlines here is that at Cairn right. University, which is a Christian college in Pennsylvania, 
they they canceled their entire social work program and they didn't really give a uh like it was like in the middle of the school year yeah and um you know they're they're the national association of social workers uh came out and said that like they just did this because you know there's an anti-racist curriculum inside of yeah, I mean, inside of this social well, work. In thing. this case, it also it was like less racial than about like queer rights, like discussion right. of LGBT rights right. and sexuality. And as Christians, you know, they don't believe that that's right or whatever. But it's a good example of how, you know, this is CRT doesn't mean anything, and it's this right. complete like woke right. agenda kind of red baiting thing. Yeah. yeah. Do you? But I mean, do you feel chilled at all as an educator in I, the same state? My school, no, and I think you know I'm in Philadelphia, so I think we're in the. I don't I don't know what Karen University is. I assume it's further out than it's like beyond you know Mechanicsburg. Phillies, yeah. Uh, it's not too far. Know. Yeah, but, but, but it's yeah, Christian also. The state oh. changes quite quickly. Um, anyway, <laughs> I think most schools. I mean, I, I, one could read it in terms of like this is a scary threat to academic freedom. Jay, I think you could also read it. You know, and this I don't want to like instill complacency as like these people know they're losing right and this is like a desperate attempt to kind of um defend themselves against what they perceive as this like liberal onslaught on their institutions but i'm sure the average student is like totally okay with the 69 project and you know and they're only going to be more and more so um well, they, why do you think that yeah because I, I don't necessarily think that yeah, i mean I, I think that there is a assault on all these things and i think that there is effectiveness right like now you can argue that like the effectiveness is just through minority control gerrymandering you know like state legislatures being totally yeah. unrepresented of the actual public <laughs> and the people who are elected being these like sort of ideologues in the way that you see in the state of north carolina for example yeah. right where you're just like all right you know <laughs> this bathroom bill is pretty weird and doesn't seem to reflect anyone's thoughts except for 12 people but those exactly, 12 yeah. people all happen to be the governor and yeah. like every and everyone in the state senate and <laughs> exactly, um yeah. but that's pretty scary you know and i do think that repeated messaging does does work right and i do think that maybe like they are trying to capitalize on what is an exhaustion from last summer right that that people of course there is going to be a regression of people's mm -hmm. feelings towards black lives matter and, yeah. and all these things um it's... and that, I, I do think it will be effective in some ways it's scary for sure, but like you said, like there's no social base. I guess they're trying to create a social base for this fear, but it does seem like it's a few random, you know, conservative people in power got this idea in their head to scapegoat this thing that's called CRT and 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 blame you know all the problems in people's lives on CRT. Well, it does seem like I don't know. I don't know if this is the right analogy. I was thinking about like you know what are the big culture war issues in the '90s. Like abortion, gay they're the marriage. same as now. <laughs> but like, gay marriage, kind of like gay marriage won. You know, like, am I wrong? Like, it's it's not a it's not, like there's obviously like a, a holdout. Um, I mean, gay marriage. Yeah, we got gay marriage. Gays can be in the military, but also now it's like so it's now a different kind of sexual hysteria around right. you know trans athletes and stuff. So it's right. like the kind right. of substituting in of similar preoccupations but the way this but like in the long run like you have this very prominent conservative group that is trying to be the bulwark of traditional values and like the rest of society just moves on right and there's I obviously hope you're right i don't that's that's <laughs> I how, less I mean, confident 
That's... I feel like you're doing a bend arc, bend bending the arc of justice thing, and I'm like, I yeah. don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's if it's okay to just like ignore this stuff and think that nobody believes in it. I mean, for example, I was talking to somebody on Twitter, and there are all these videos that come out, and it was of this school district in Missouri, and mm-hmm. the you there are all these videos of these parents that's being like, you know. I refuse to allow my kid to learn anything about critical race theory. And like these kids, I think we're in middle school or something. It's like, it's yeah. not a problem. Oh, <laughs> I know. Right? But like, you know what they basically don't go to mean Harvard is they don't school. Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, actually there's an interesting thing where at Cal, I think that some of the students have basically demanded that critical race theory is taught as like a, as a standard class uh, in one L. You know, uh, yeah. and like I was like, all right, you know, let's kick that at Cal Law School. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah like funny. whatever it's called. Or, it's or not like called Sierra. Bolt anymore, but no, um, oh, it's not. I don't even. No, know. because Bolt like said some anti-Asian stuff, or he was like a eugenicist or something like that. Oh, but, really? Uh, so they I changed. I don't know what the new that. name of the school is, wow. but yeah, like that. That's oh, <laughs> that's where like critical race theory wow. is actually the critical race theory. Yeah. But at that one, I was like. I was like, that's amazing. That is, <laughs> you yeah. guys created the perfect my... culture war uh, yeah. uh, thing where it's like students at UC Berkeley have demanded critical oh race God. theory. I would have been a much happier law student if that were like a one L class. <laughs> um, but I mean, does, um, does a I don't know. Well, anyway, just to finish the story, yeah. like, the, you know, like these parents in, in Missouri, like they look scary to somebody like me, you know, like they're like basically they seem deranged in a lot of ways because they're talking about something that's not real. Right. And sure. yeah. And so then I, I was talking to this person and he was like, this is my school district. And it's like a small group of parents, but they're terrifying because they basically wow. won't stop until they get their way. But Annie, to your point, it's not the majority of parents. You know, like it's yeah. not like everyone in the so. school district is like, hey, critical race theory. But I do think that like a small minority, especially in things like schooling, generally That's wins out thing. like a small vocal yeah. minority. That's true. That's what's so scary. And I think in the Karen case, I mean, to me, the reason that one was very chilling to me was because they canceled an entire program. And it's not yeah. just that those students will no longer be able to like finish their degree, but it's that um, it, it's an allegation that there are certain kinds of disciplines yeah. that are so steeped in this that the discipline itself must disappear yeah. you know and i think that would extend to like history and like all the humanities yeah. like if taken <laughs> to its logical conclusion whereas right. nobody's going to be like astrophysics that is like a really a place where like crt yeah. is blowing up you know but i think in all of the disciplines that are already endangered we are they yeah. are so vulnerable to this kind of hysteria well, i don't even think tammy that the astrophysics thing is immune to it because those types of critiques do exist i mean look no, what happened do. with like I mean, epidemiology like, and everyone totally. being like epidemiology got too woke it's you know? true i mean i just don't it just doesn't seem like the natural sciences would be like the first target you know yeah. whereas something like well, social work where it's actually in the, like maybe yeah no i know maybe i'm exaggerating the difference I, I actually kind of think that social work one my i don't know i don't know any details but my suspicion is almost like they wanted to cut it anyway and, and this provides well, we don't know that let's not yeah. speculate yeah. but the uh but the, the th- <laughs> even if that were true what? i mean 50 minutes of this podcast let's not speculate i know but let's not speculate on, on like we shouldn't say we shouldn't nerf their intentions if we don't know what their intentions yeah that's are, fair right yeah. Yeah. um like uh so the second question andy is the one that you brought up before which i think is also very interesting which is that for those of us who have critiques of this type of stuff anyway right where um like diversity seminars, uh, the sort of like uh, kind of neoliberal fixation on race, right? Like this sort of idea that um, equity 
that you know education equity must be you know the f- central focus of all education and that we should change everything to achieve that type of equity when the real question is like well why don't we just get rid of the types of exclusionary and exclusive programs that that are at the fault of all of this right and the question is never should we get rid of harvard or chain or boost like funding to community colleges or to public universities it's just like well how do we get more of like x per type of person into these institutions right for people who have those types of critiques this is this is a little bit harrowing because you there is part of you that's like well maybe it would be better to have less of these types of like uh diversity rackets around the country and i don't know i don't i i think just from my personal perspective that like this is one of those times where you just have to like ignore that you know, like the threat is too big. And I think that like uh, the things that that, you know, like like sort of being like, well, I don't know about diversity seminars and white fragility. Like it is not like a big deal when the other side is like, let's stop talking about race. Let's stop talking about slavery. Let's like basically build this white supremacist type of educational system yeah. that like <laughs> that can like punish teachers for even breathing the words, you know, Um I don't know. I just think about my own education in the South, right? Like where the Civil War is taught by some teachers in some ways and by other teachers in totally ways that would seem crazy (laughs) to anybody who didn't grow up in the South. And like if that second part became like the doctrinaire part, which I think is what people want, right? Like essentially being like the war of northern aggression or whatever Mm -hmm. like that. I don't know. That's really bad, you know? And like, I think that we should be able to tolerate some diversity (laughs) seminars Um, or at least like, you know, Basically, I don't, if you have to choose a side, like I think the side is pretty obvious, but maybe I'm wrong. Sure. No, I, I totally get that. And I agree. I just, yeah. I mean, that might be right. I, I wonder like what they would allow. I guess if that makes sense. And, you know, I know even saying like saying, asking like what they would allow is the problem uh, in terms of allowing like administrators to control what gets taught. But um, like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like if you just like, you could teach the Civil War. Um, in the, I mean, do you feel like in the South you just can't teach the Civil War as a, a war over slavery? And, and sort of like, well, it's just depending on the teacher, you know, like our AP, whatever, like our sort of like the vaunted teacher at Chapel High School was this guy, and he would, you know, he would jokingly call it the War of Northern Aggression. But I was thinking about it recently because I was thinking about Barbara Fields, and I was like, well, Barbara Fields was first in my public like my consciousness in fifth grade when we all had to watch the the uh, civil war and basically oh, yeah. like the way that that my education of american history which every single year was just like a you know re- repeat of talking about the civil war was taught was basically like do you agree with shelby foot or do you agree with barbara fields <laughs> i'm not kidding yeah, like yeah. you know wow. and, and by the time the we get to high school right <laughs> you have like uh you have our high school English teacher basically saying that Barbara Fields is a fraud, you know, and Shelby Foote is like the, wow. is like the, yeah. And like, that's, yeah. you know, like, I think that's wow, basically that's what they want. You know, they want uh, Barbara Fields yeah. to shut up. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. The most interesting part about it is that Barbara Fields is like sort of cast as this like, mm-hmm. you know, like the equivalent right. of like a diversity seminar CRT, yeah, which like so one person, funny. which is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> so off. yeah obviously the best case is like no laws whatsoever and that's not i'm obviously like on the side of like opposing the laws i am wondering like as from the perspective of someone in the classroom like your teacher who was teaching that was not doing that because of an administrator your teacher was teaching that because your teacher gets to do whatever they want in the classroom 
And right. I kind of think like if you know if I'm in the state of Pennsylvania and they ban this or that, I'll just do it anyway, you know. And I guess you know the worst case is like, well, actually, what if they actually do enforce and like like they send yeah, they I ask mean, kids to like write out their teachers and so on. Yeah, then you know. Um, I think there is an enforcement mechanism built into it. Right, yeah. and there's there is fear where like you know yeah. some kid is going to go home and their parents are going to write a letter, you know, that yeah. gets blasted all over Fox News, and then totally. you're suddenly like a national target you know yeah. like it is scary it's very know. fast when it happens you know yeah um so it, for me it definitely has huac vibes like for sure so you know and i think that? oh sorry like house and american committee uh, american oh, yeah, Expertise right. committee you know i think it really i think it because yeah kids kind of innocently talk to their especially at the k through 12 level like kids innocently talk to their families about what's going on you know yeah. and then you get one of these missouri parents that that jay's mentioning and, and you're done Right. Right. You have no and you have no real defense of what you're doing because they're going to classify everything you say as being critical race theory. Yeah. I don't know what teachers unions in these states are going to do. I mean, sure, they're organizing around it and trying to Mm -hmm. figure out what that mechanism would look like. Like there would be grievance procedure and everything. Obviously, not everyone's in a teacher's union. Um, You know, not everyone has tenure um, at college. So it's 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 scary and i think it also i mean just thinking about like at cairn or one of those schools where they they take a really draconian measure like for students who are you know black in a school in a school that's like majority white or like kids who are queer in a school that's majority straight like it's not just a disciplinary thing it's it's like the way that you're looked at by your your faculty and you know and other students you you could feel very um targeted yeah it's just kind of crazy to me that I think I mean, maybe the experience is different in law school, Tammy, your experience, but like critical race theory never comes up um, in humanities and social sciences. Uh, maybe like in like U.S. history, like maybe U.S. like political history. Um, so it's like it's it's like I'm sort of like you guys chose the wrong one. <laughs> you guys you guys like you guys didn't name the right. What should they have chosen? <laughs> I think like, you know, Afro pessimism is like the real thing that people are talking about in academia, which is could it could it easily be spun as the real racial boogeyman, you know, mm. that, you know, Vincent wrote about Frank Wilderson um, yeah. in The New Yorker. And I think Afro pessimism is the one that actually has legs in the humanities and social sciences at the mm. university level. Um, and but I guess you're I don't know. I wonder if. Like, is there any way that someone could prove that someone was teaching critical race theory when they actually weren't teaching? <laughs> you could be like, yeah, well, I was teaching like prove it. No, because it doesn't point. mean anything. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I actually think that it's basically just the name, you know? Yeah. It's like they wanted a name that sounded as as uh, as conspiratorial as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you have a theory, yeah. you know, then that's basically, and it's a critical race theory. It says theory. race in it. It's like yeah, a yeah. great name to, to basically cast everything under the umbrella of and look there are other variations of these types of arguments that are going on right yeah. like where people basically vaguely name something and say that like everything is the same it's all part of one large movement mm-hmm. and you know like they'll say like Catherine mckinnon uh you know started this thing and then it got picked up by like the wokes right who like turned it into like uh critical race theory they turned it into wokeism and now like at the whole world like andrew sullivan is somebody who makes this type of argument right, yeah. right which is that everybody is conspiring together and it's this cabal of global elites which you know sounds kind of anti-semitic but like <laughs> is like is like trying to enforce all of this and suppress yeah. liberalism right like the, these are arguments that are very familiar to us at this point yeah and the crt thing it uses the same type of mechanism right and so i don't know it it seems to 
indicate that we're in this world in which like you can make any type of conspiracy theory and basically say that everybody believes this and that a lot of people will believe you that everybody believes this and yeah. like that is a scary moment i mean yeah. it, you know obviously that the hearkenings back to mccarthyism etc cetera, etc cetera, are yeah. very uh fresh or, or like, anti-communism or whatever in the United States. Yeah, and in the 80s and 90s, it seems like there was this moral panic over postmodernism that seems very antiquated <laughs> now, but there was like so much written about postmodernism, like ruining the academy and ruining science and mm-hmm. um, all that stuff. I don't know how much that seeped into like high school or general, like yeah. beyond the ivory tower, but there was a lot of weird stuff written. And of course, like nobody said, I'm a postmodernist. Like I am a, you know, like it was just the sort of blanket accusation that could be just kind of tossed around and right. if you denied it that just and, proved you were postmodern <laughs> well and more recently there were the ethnic studies bans that were going around many states so you know that that's very fresh yeah or like jordan peterson talking about uh postmodern whatever marxism or what, what was this what, was what is this? he talking about <laughs> <laughs> he calls himself post- a classical liberal yeah but his his, his argument was like against like postmodern cultural marxism or something like that yeah right? i mean like, this I is like what, i don't know yeah. what that means nonsensical <laughs> right right um i don't know what's the best way for people on the left to sort of combat some of this stuff because yeah. i do think there are moments where you do feel a little bit conflicted about it you know i saw this tweet that um and i won't name the person but you know i'm sure it's still up it's just like uh you know and this is about the response to nicole hannah jones uh you know losing her tenure because like some person on the board of chancellors or something like that or the board of of education that leads the university of north carolina basically said that like gave this completely convoluted and stupid answer and all these emails about why he thought that she shouldn't get <laughs> she shouldn't get tenure yeah. um but you know like her point was like basically yes this is a racist outcome you know like um and that there is racism in the tenure of you but that doesn't mean that you have to support everything that 1619 said right like so that that was like that mm-hmm. type like and yet, I don't know, like, you know, it, it does seem like that would be a great individual type of distinction to make. <laughs> right. Right. But, and, but I don't know if that's like a political distinction that one can make. Right. Like you, like, it does seem like we're in some sort of actual culture war. So yeah. what, what do you think people should do? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's usual petitions, all that stuff. Like this stuff seems, seems so... At this point, I might be totally wrong, and like next episode, things will be totally different. But it does feel like so much theater at this point, in in, in the same way a lot of these culture wars are theater. Um, but yeah, it, once... it doesn't worry that they're like state laws now. Like, you think I, that's still well, theater? Yeah, I think a lot of it is theater until there's like enforcement, and we see like people losing their jobs and losing tenure over teaching this or that. Well, um, we can't wait for but that. We just we did see somebody <laughs> lose tenure over this, right? Nicole Hannah-Jones. Right, right. And we have seen teachers being fired and entire departments being dissolved because of yeah. this. But, yeah. well, like, there's not much we can do about this. Like, up to the individual universities, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, we could protest and we could, like, do petitions as before, but that's... I don't I don't think adding CRT or the this movement um, changes what was already there, which is, like, these are very obscure processes universities can do it like you know steven salada famously like was not was denied a job in 2014 over some tweets over palestine 
uh, George Sikorola Mahler lost tenure over tweets about white nationalism. Like, uh, I think that's just like the condition that all academics, I mean, the real thing isn't so much, I think, free speech um, at the university level. It's about like, you know, crumbling tenure, crumbling job security, mm-hmm. um, you know, the stuff that's happening to the economics of the industry, which is the same as all other labor markets in this country, right? With like less permanent security, less guarantees and all yeah. that stuff. And then that gets used or in those conditions, yeah, like um, people will use these political disagreements or will use the economic insecurity as a way to kind of threaten people over political disagreements. I think that's changed yeah. for sure. Um, but this is one more tool, right, towards that. And so it seems like it should be very frightening to you. Yeah. I mean, you're you're in a good position. Like, I don't think you personally, but I mean, like your colleagues in different places. Like, this could really yeah, trickle I mean, down to them. I think it could. It could for sure. I think. Um, I mean, I guess. Are you saying like it is the what's the word? Is the like articulation of CRT as the target that is distinct, or is it like there are literal laws that are banning the teaching of critical race theory in. Yeah. several states right now that yeah. doesn't seem to be theater to me it seems like you know that's sort of a law that's intended to have people essentially act as vigilantes against uh any sort of social yeah. justice conversation or even completely historical conversation about race yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like your discipline is really under threat by this. And I think at the K through 12 level, the functioning of it through some of the processes that Jay was describing with school boards to me is like particularly frightening. I mean, higher ed is also scary, but there are so many important things that need to happen for children and K through 12 to understand just who they are, who we are, that this could really fuck people up, you know? And I think it's a really serious moment for free speech activists and for students and families to be organizing yeah. against this. I mean, it's, it's pretty big. I guess, I guess one question is, you know, as, as like the premise of this conversation, the first thing you said, Jay, was like, this isn't actually about CRT. This isn't actually about any particular set of ideas. Right. I mean, I think 1619 is the most concrete <laughs> one. Right. But like, yeah, it's like, um, so what is the left defending, <laughs> you know? Well, I think the left is defending the right for, you know, uh, any number of people or any group of people to talk about, about, you know, historical injustices that have happened, to talk about slavery, to talk about, you know, the fact that, that the United States is deeply unequal. You know, I yeah. think that that's what you're sort of yeah. and, you, defending, and you think which those is, laws are banning all of that? They are. They specifically are written to, like, be so vague that anything can... Be f- can fit under this rubric now yeah i don't want to be so alarmist about this sort of stuff but you know the more you read about it the actual scarier that it gets and the quickness with which these state legislatures are passing these laws through right now I, will it be a problem in new york state probably not will it be a problem in california i don't know maybe maybe in some school districts it will be you know yeah. and maybe in some it won't be i don't know i guess i have this like sort of thought where it's just like all right i do think that uh you know like there's no reason to sort of go into the actual minutia of what CRT is or even yeah. talk about what right. school boards actually are. Because, like, I think we can agree that there are certain things like, like you know, every basically everything that Richard Carranza did in New York City that I think is, like, appalling to somebody if they're on the left, right? Like, it's... Uh, um, and 
uh, there is a type of like diversity racket that goes around that makes a lot of money that, you know, uh, sort of promotes this idea of like equity in a very bad faith type of way. And I think we can all identify that as well. I don't think any of that's necessarily relevant. Like this is essentially just a attack on free speech. And I think the defense of it should be a free speech defense. Yeah, now. yeah sure. The, yeah. the problem that I have with it is that like the, you know, it seems like progressives, especially, but also many on the left are completely uninterested in having a free speech type of argument. Right. right. And so like, I don't know, Michael Powell over the weekend at the New York Times published this big thing about how the ACLU is like consumed with like this internal fight over, you know, wokeness and, you know, as he would put it versus like the old guard who wants to still uh, defend free speech and civil liberties. And a lot of it in the, his sort of inimitable way was like in like, you know, sort of aligning many different facts. Right. But that culture war within the ACLU is very real. You know, yeah. like the thing that he's talking about is real. Yeah. And so, uh, Michael Powell, the the guy who opposes his own union, right? Anyway, right. New, go on. Yeah, the New York Times oh. uh, anti wokeness <laughs> reporter, I think, is the best way to put it. Oh, but like, okay. Um, you know, like it doesn't like the fact that his article, which you know, I I don't know, whatever, I don't need to comment on it, but like, uh, like the thing that he's describing is actually very real within the ACLU yeah. from the people that I talk to who are inside of the ACLU and people that, you know, just from hearing stories about it. And so, like, is the left prepared to make a defense of free speech? I don't think so. You know, yeah. like, is like even like the progressive side or even just centrist Democrats, the types of people who uh, live around me here in yeah. Berkeley yeah. Who, who might like have the ACLU in their will, you know? Yeah. Like, are those people really prepared to have like a uh, knockdown, drag out fight with the right over free speech? No, because we ceded all that ground, right? Like the, the free speech is a right wing issue at this point um, in totally crazy and disingenuous ways. That's what bothers me. But, because I mean, like otherwise, then you have to parse out all these things. You have to defend all these things that right. you don't want to defend. Right. You have but to you don't of... have to in this one. I mean, this one's easier in that sense. Right. Because it's set up to appeal to yeah. the left's. I, well, desires so, around free speech as a as a, someone who doesn't think about free speech as much as you jay um why do you think free speech is the thing that leftists should hone in on like isn't that also just giving the right ammunition to talk about their own free speech and sure can, that's fine you know and all that stuff yeah <laughs> yeah but you know i'm free speech absolutist i think that you know you shouldn't you know i think donald trump should be on twitter you know i think yeah. that uh I think that uh, the ACLU should definitely defend people with disgusting views, you know, and I think that when you have a, and I do believe that if you defend speech broadly, then these types of problems are harder for people to make an argument against, you know. Um, and I think that part of the problem is that like, uh, and look, I'm not blaming people for like creating whatever sort of cancel culture type of environment. But it was very obvious that once the left started doing these types of things, that the right would just do the same thing, right? And just say, you did it, so we're going to do it. Now, that doesn't, I'm not victim Like, they get to cancel also, you're saying. Right, right, right. And that, like, uh, I don't think that the left invented these types of mechanisms to silence people. Like, I think that the right did. But I do think that, essentially, when the left, you know, goes through this period where it does seem to be somewhat hostile to speech, does things Mm -hmm. like, you know... um, uh, deplatform speakers on college campuses and stuff like that, that turns into a very emotional issue for people who yeah. see it because most people support free speech in America, right? Like, yeah. they, and it's one of the things they actually do care about. Yeah. And uh, I think that it makes it much easier to basically say, 
we're canceling the cancelers, you know, yeah, we're canceling yeah, yeah. the people who are, yeah. who are doing all of this and like all your kids are crazy, right? Like they're all like yeah. non-binary now and they're talking about like, uh, yeah. like social justice and they're talking about, you know, burning down things and rioting. Like we have to stop this. Right. And like that, that's the environment, like that's the type of argument that's advanced under the same exact mechanism that's being yeah. used. I just think the easier thing to do is just defend all speech, you know, and, and not worry if, if people are saying things that are disgusting, um, ju- and think to try and stop them. there are a lot of free speech absolutists on the left, though? I, I don't think there, think there are, though. Like, I who? do. I mean, I think, like, I'm thinking about a bunch of ACLU cases that are, like, still in the very old school ACLU mode of, like, defending KKK rallies. <laughs> like, I, right. I think I think there are. I, I, I'm pretty close to you on it. Maybe not the full <laughs> JKang, but, like, and I, I actually think there are a lot of people, but somehow the right... I think you're right, has been able to capture it and sell it that they are. But I, I don't think we're an insignificant number that really believes in free speech here. Yeah. It's certainly not a something that's promoted though, as like yeah. a as a value of the left. It does make right? you sound libertarian yeah, if you talk about free speech a lot. Right. That's what I mean. Like <laughs> uh, I don't think it's something that people talk about. You sound about. like Glenn Greenwald, basically. I feel like it maybe well, I've just I think embraced the libertarianism. I, think, I mean, I think that Glenn in his own sort of toxic way is right about this yeah, thing yeah. you know like i mean i don't agree with glenn about 95 percent of stuff he tweets about these days but like right. you know like i would never say that glenn is not serious about speech of course he's serious about yeah. speech and the stuff that he's talking about like that that guy uh that rosas guy who like is the reporter who goes around for like right wing and just films uh you know moments of rioting at at protests and the idea that like we should cancel him or not cancel him I don't. I think it's bad faith. I don't think that many people are arguing that you should cancel yeah. him. But obviously, that the 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 default stance should be he should be able to do whatever he wants, you know. And yeah. um, I think somehow the left has been suckered into basically having the right, and many in the center believe that we don't think that. Yeah. Although maybe I think a lot of people don't think that he has he should have the right to be doing that, which I I have no idea. But I, it just seems so obvious to me. But again, I'm 41 years old. Right. I feel like this is like a generational thing. You're not Tam- 71. <laughs> Tam- Tammy and I are, Tam- Tammy, not to out you, but Tammy and I are old. So upsetting. I know. Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't understand these kids. You know, like, like why, why won't let the, you and why me, won't they? Yeah. Yeah. My optometrist told me yesterday that bifocals are quote right around the corner. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I fuck you, still dude. Make bifocals. <laughs> I do. Anyway. I, I do think the CRT thing really smacks of revenge politics to your yes. and for sure. For sure. That yeah. that I think maybe to me that's why it's not. I mean, that's why I, you found it sillier. Yeah. I don't know. I, I might be proven wrong, and I apologize in advance if I am. But it does sound <laughs> like this is a gotcha by the right, a, a group that's on the defensive rather than this group about to like overtake. Um, the acad- academy. It might just be, you know, I don't want to make light of the fact like there are probably a lot of institutions and teachers who are going to be affected by this. Um, I, I mean, I still kind of feel like they can just dodge it if, they, if they're smart enough, you know, but um, it does feel like it's not like they started this thing that's about to blow up bigger. It's more like they feel like they're just reacting to something else and they feel under attack and they just want to like, you know, have a little like revenge and it's just kind of sad, you know. I don't know. I hope you're right. I, I, really, but I, mean, I, I hope you're know. right. But I don't, I'm thinking about I really like a te- you know you. the teachers in like rural schools who like it is actually really hard for them to teach things that like don't like feel quote unquote automatically Christian or like you sure. know 
you know, but they were they, they had they had those issues before these laws, no? Yeah, but now yeah, they're but in now law. they're laws. They're literally you know, there's laws. A, there's like, a difference between yeah, like being really like your scary. superintendent saying like, uh, that you know, don't do that woke stuff, and him being like, you're fired because of this law. Like, yeah. you know, like it's very different. What is your right? reinstatement right, or like what is your defense in that situation? You know, and it just, yeah. I don't know. I feel like then really conservative parents in these areas are like, you tell me if your teacher says slavery, or right. you know, right. there's like. Or it makes you feel bad that. about being white or something yeah. like that. And all you did was like say Martin Luther King existed, you know? Exactly. And then, and then the like kid I remember comes in my school, I mean, I went to a decent, you know, public schools, but like there, I had this white friend who was really annoying. And like during the slavery, teacher, she cried. <laughs> what were you? She cried like every day. And I was like, why in the fuck are you crying? And this is like <laughs> before white tears. Like I didn't know what a white tear was, you know? Right. But like, those kind of people, like they're gonna get. What was she? Fired. What, what did she say? It was like this is making. She me was feel just bad. like, I can't believe. Yeah, like I can't believe white people did this, but also why do I have to take responsibility? I mean, it was the yeah. whole range of white yeah. fragility, but like you know. I will. Yeah, I had this one experience. <laughs> oh my god, that sounds horrible. Horrible. Yeah. Wait, this was your friend. This is in middle school. It was your friend, though. I remember it so clearly. Yeah. You don't have to say her name, but, you know, do you have any idea what she's doing? I see you, Allison. Yeah. Oh, it's like, I see you, Robin D'Angelo. Yeah. I'll just stop there. (laughs) Yeah, I do feel like between the three of us, we don't really have empathy for what it's like to be a white person learning about slavery. I, I will say the, the most divisive class I ever taught was teaching Barbara Fields, and it was very interesting to see the well, isn't that well, Why was it divisive, though? Was yeah, it divisive it be because it was like people basically – what did you teach? Did you teach racecraft or something like yeah, that? Yeah, she has a very famous essay about slavery and racial ideology, which oh. um, I, I think – I've taught it several times since, and it's gone pretty well, but one time I think I wasn't like – you know, I, mean, I don't want to get too into like nerdy about the classroom specifics, but I think it, I don't think I even like presented it as like, you know, this is a morality tale or whatever, but it became like defense. People got defensive. Mm. Uh, students got defensive about it. And in a way that I felt like, oh, you've heard this from your parents before. I see. You know? yeah. And, you know, to the credit, like a lot of the white students were also like really into it and uh, were like, you know, totally open to it. And, all. and it did feel like I was like fighting with their parents by proxy. Through, yeah, through the students. That's interesting. I would think that racecraft would be controversial for another reason, which is that, you know, like the students who are sort of extremely race reductionist <laughs> would be mad exactly. at, at Barbara and Karen Fields. You know, that they <laughs> that's would, the new, that's the, the like, left critique. That's the latest <laughs> stage in that debate. Well, not even the left critique. It's sort of like the progressive diversity DEI right, right. critique. The liberal right? critique like, of the leftists. Right, I right. Guess it's so, that yeah. like Barbara Fields doesn't take race seriously enough and um, Karen Fields doesn't take, you know, like, Believes yeah. that like race doesn't actually matter if Tamara, which Tamara is a said that in your episode with her, yeah, yeah, oh, it's yeah. like a ridiculous thing to say. Yeah. Um, uh, no, not not what Tamara said in terms of they don't take race all that seriously, which I think is actually the correct way to put it in a lot of ways. That yeah. I think they of course take race very seriously, but they don't think it's the most determinative thing or the only determinative thing, right? Um, yeah. Whereas I do think you know I don't know I think a lot of kids these days do believe that uh, right that. Um, that it doesn't matter as so you'll see like uh, uh that's what sort of spurs you know i don't know what we saw like with new york times over this week where you know they put out this article about like uh you know how asians in the tech industry or something like that are upset <laughs> because people don't know their names or something like that and how it affects their careers like that's what they're talking about which is just yeah. that you take the energy that comes out of atlanta and you turn it into basically like all these things are exactly the same right all racial oppression is exactly the same and can be 
completely separated out from class and immigration status and stuff yeah. like that. And uh, me being basically mistaken for my coworker, me being mistaken as a delivery man in my lobby is exactly the same as these women getting shot, right? They would never articulate that argument, but that is essentially the end point of that argument, right? Like that's essentially what they're saying. And so. like every bad thing I feel is because of race. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I, I think that is that is an intellectual tendency that's, um, I don't know if it's emerging, but I'm noticing it more. Um, in your students? Not even just like among academics um, or, mm-hmm. or, or just, mm-hmm. you know, and um, I don't know what to name it. I don't think it's critical race theory because it's critical. I don't know. No. Tim, you can tell me if I'm don't wrong. Don't call it critical race. It definitely Good Lord. is not. <laughs> Definitely not critical. Was it actually taught in law schools, like as this main? I mean, you went to NYU, we had, so we I had mean, like a Derek Bell was yeah, there. Well, so yeah, Derek Bell was there at the time. We oh my like god, my dog! Faculty. I apologize. I know your dog is freaking out. Is he okay? Yeah, um, we just got a delivery. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. see. Yeah. No, uh, I. I um. Yeah, I mean, I did. I tried to find it, but I think I also understood it as part of like critical legal studies generally. Yeah. And there were all these different strands coming out of that that to me like made me really gave me a sense of the world. And the way power circulates, you know, so I, I still think it's very valuable. Yeah. Right. But but right. it wasn't like a thing that's... Wait, you didn't do it oh, in debate, Oh, but was it Andy? like enforced? Huh? You didn't run yeah. it in debate? I only know it from debate. And I remember like reading the articles and it's like, here's a here's a court case where this happened. And like, let's think about race in this court case. It's not 1619. It's not the original sin of, you know... Right. I mean, we ran it as like century. a... That's very narrow. Yeah. We ran it as like a critique against basically every single argument, uh, reform of the criminal justice system, because yeah. uh, one of the <laughs> topics was juvenile justice. And so uh, somebody would be like, let's get rid of the, you know, 21 crack cocaine sentencing law, which, you know, which is weird because it probably didn't extend to juvenile justice at all. But, you know, that's debate. And then you would argue that basically any attempt to reform the legal justice system, you know, around race is actually going to reify racism within the criminal justice system. Like that was basically yeah, yeah, yeah. the argument that oh, I think I we see. ran as like critical race theory. But, you know, we would read like Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 type of cards and stuff like that. I was thinking about this. Andy, uh, Tammy, I apologize. But Andy, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this as like a debate argument that like if you ran critical race theory as a critique within states that had banned critical race theory, <laughs> debate round and said that like essentially the judge's performative uh duty within the round is to vote for the right. re- you know re- vote right. against like these actual things and that you're actually yeah. making like a political statement and that the judge has a duty to if they believe that like these types of things are bad which you yeah. know uh to actually affirm the usage of critical race theory and educational context within that state yeah. that's a fucking great argument you know <laughs> It can also, also scare the like, judge. You would like judge my crush. I don't, want to, I don't want to get arrested. <laughs> Just, I'm going to vote you would, Yeah, I know, you would crush like the Montana State debate tournament, I think, with that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that, that, yeah, I think that state's pretty conservative. Oh, my God. I want to go back to high school just so I can run it, you know? Just be <laughs> you like, listen, I'm just going to read a bunch of staring and, and Kimberly well, Weren't you guys both like debate coaches or was that you? Just you, Andy? No, I would some, yeah. You both, yeah, you guys both said that. Yeah, maybe I'll go be a debate coach in Montana. (laughs) 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 Oh my God, then you can be the ACLU test case. Right, right, yeah, that's a good idea. You'd be such a good plaintiff. 
I, I don't think I would be a very good plaintiff, honestly. <laughs> if you be quiet. But... <laughs> yeah, there's no way I'd be a good plaintiff. But um, anyway, I'm sorry for that diversion. We should probably cut it out because it's like the nerdiest the podcast has ever done. No, I think right. our listeners will appreciate it. I think Mel will oh, like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, Mel Fleshman. <laughs> okay, any last thoughts about any of this stuff? Because uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't... I guess my last thought about it is just that like, I, I do really think that we have to separate it from like essential like critiques of race essentialism, you know, and it's going to have to just be one of these things where you just got to like be on the same side, you know, because uh, what's happening is horrible. And um, I don't know, I, I am scared by it, you know, like uh, I do think that this is a basic attempt to enact a set of laws and that, you know, it combined with different things that the right is doing around voter suppression, everything like that, it seems like it's like a whole plan that they have right now, right? Yeah. And um, they're capitalizing yeah. on people responding to riots or capitalizing on people, you know, being exhausted with, you know, athletes kneeling and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And that uh, I do think that they have a lot of potential, you know, um, to change a lot of people's minds about this type of stuff. Yeah. And, uh, it seems like we should separate that out, but maybe I'm wrong. You know, like maybe, like maybe I'm just like being a squishy liberal or something like that. I mean, it's definitely disturbing. I think, you know, like voter suppression, that's very, I mean, that's like much more substantive, right? In terms of the consequences of that, that I am worried about that. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm sort of in this wait and see approach to see what will actually happen, which is I'm not like going to like tell someone it's not a big deal. But I, I think as a sort of chin stroking observer on Twitter, I'm like, oh, shit, what's going to happen <laughs> next? You know, it's, it's kind of how I process a lot of this stuff. Well, you're also a parent. So, you'll, I mean, it's not going to happen in Philly, but, you know, I think it's something also for parents to oh, really Philly care about, you know, never do. <laughs> no, I know. But, you know, ju- just generally. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. I feel, I don't know. I just feel like there's workarounds and teachers, and and eventually this will pass over, and people will forget this is a law, and you know, in a year or two, like it won't even even be remembered. That's my completely uneducated un- prediction. Andy. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, but, yeah, it's crazy mean, to I, legislate I, what's in the classroom. I agree with that. Right, but also just be like, you can't basically say that this, this, and this happened. You know, yeah. and that you can't like make white people feel bad about slavery which is essentially one of the things that yeah i thought happens, you were going to be super so mad at that weird because it's like well <laughs> it's not really the teacher's choice whether or not the individual person does like right. allison did in tammy's classroom and cries every day right <laughs> you know, a lot of people <laughs> will hear this stuff and not care at all you know um or a lot of people will feel it and you know go yeah. the other way and just be like yeah that was awesome that we did that you know but like it's like I don't know. It just, there, it's just such a weird thing. Am I wrong? Yeah. Or was there like laws about creationism also? Like evolution is banned in certain states. Is yeah, that, they tried to do that too. Right? Is that, did yeah. those laws... And the ethnic studies yeah, but that thing, was like, bad too. Lots of these <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. it was bad, but like, did it actually like stop? <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. In certain states, yeah, they, they, they stopped teaching evolution for quite a bit. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Yes, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> but like, this is so much squishier. This isn't like... Did God create the earth? Or... But that's even scarier that, that it's squishier. That makes it worse, That's though. the thing. Like it's you're, worse I think, that it's yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I think your view of enforcement is the opposite of ours in the yeah. sense that, like, the 
this is a bigger, vaguer thing, I that's mean, worse. Like, if I were in a debate right now, I would say, like, yeah, the vaguer, the worse. Like, this is how the law works, but... Um, right. I don't know. <laughs> right. I don't know. You would be correct. Did you out-debate <laughs> yourself in your mind? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how the law works, yeah. you know? Okay. Penumbra. You make... You make <laughs> right, 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 right. Everyone's in the panopticon, right? <laughs> What other type of what other type of critical no, theory? There's no link. There's no uniqueness on this. this uh, get out of here. Of course, there's unique. The uniqueness is that they cast the laws. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It um, seems a very like Alec template feel to me. You know what is that? Because they're snapping these things out really quickly. The Alec, the the right wing legislative council that like where all right wing people get together every year to like template legislation and push it uh, in their localities. Right, exactly, yeah. That's the feeling yeah. of this, right? And so in the same way with like the trans athlete bans and the bathroom bills and stuff, this is really feels like an extension of that. They've found the schools to be a very particularly good place yeah. for them to wage these wars. Yeah. I do think that the one responsibility then maybe we can end on this, which is just that uh the one responsibility they do have, like within outside of just defending speech in itself, is to propose like a better version of like right what the worst of the DEI type of stuff is, right? Diversity and inclusion, equity, and that um, I don't quite know how to do that at a large scale because you know I am just one person with a podcast and you know some bylines, but I do think that there is a way in which you can sort of say, look, um, you know, like racism is a problem, all this stuff, and you know, all this stuff is real. We can't stop talking about it, but perhaps like we should not allow ourselves to be represented by the worst of us, you know? Um, and uh, that's very difficult because um, yeah. they're going to never point to us. They're always going to point to other things. And, uh, you know, on the other side, the, the, the loudest megaphones tend to go to people who make those types of arguments. And um, I don't know, it's probably just a way of place that the left loses as it always does. <laughs> <laughs> Dang, that's a sad note to end on. Oh well. Okay. <laughs> no, it's a hopeful note, you know. Um, I think at least. Um, you know. It's uh it's it's tough though. We're in a weird place. <laughs> it's a weird time, I think that's for sure. Yeah, and I mean these people are fucking awful. Yeah. You know? like that's I think that's the the end result. It's just yeah. like and the way that they're conscripting Asians into this stuff is like so effective and so scary. it's like that's horrifying. right there's chinese um or there's just like asian american groups that are also like crowing about crt now as well right? yeah basically all the people who all the chinese groups that came out against uh not to single out chinese people but you know honestly <laughs> affirmative it, is, action. it is chinese people like the uh the chinese americans who came out against affirmative action like all yeah. those groups yeah. are uh have released statements about critical race theory which are just mm. like, oh my god! <laughs> like, what's happening in this world? Very so incredible. I guess yeah, if that's in our backyard, we could we could yell at those people. They're like Asian yeah. Americans, not against CRT or something. Right, but what are you even <laughs> going to say to them? You know, it's like um, basically they're just like critical race theory is why my kid didn't get into Harvard. And there's right. so yeah. many steps. <laughs> like I'm thinking about the organizing script you would give the door-to-door organizer to try to organize them out of this. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah. Because yeah. it doesn't make any sense. It makes no there's nothing you can do to argue against it because they believe essentially that yeah. the world operates in a way that it doesn't. And so, yeah. you know, you have to basically deprogram them and then oh, also man. but then they're just like, but it's my kid. And that's the that's a problem with all this, right? It's all like, but it's my kid because it's all about the education system. Okay, 
We're at an hour and a half. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, as always, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash ttsgpod, or you can subscribe to the show on Substack at goodbye.substack.com. You can always email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com, or you can DM us on Twitter. We are at ttsgpod. Uh, thank you for everybody who has subscribed so far. We have, you know, I don't know, there's a lot of you. Many of you are in our Discord community, which is the best way if you want to talk to Mir Andy about the NBA playoffs <laughs> or if you want to talk to Tommy, Tammy about uh, left organizing things, <laughs> which is essentially the way that was. <laughs> nothing else. I That's the best way that you can get in touch with us. And, you know, we have, I don't know, we have 500 or something, 600 people in that Discord right now. The conversations are lively. They're fun. I would say that it is, you know, um, you know it's the, the most active Discord community I've been in. People talk all day long. Uh, it's great. And so if you want to join, uh, you just have to subscribe to the show, uh, get all of our extra bonus content. And uh, yeah, um, we have, uh, who is the who is coming on this week? It's Gabe Winant. Uh, Gabe is coming in. Well, we've rec- I've recorded with Gabe. I've also recorded with um, Chelsea Shearer, uh, who worked on the More Friends Are like Comfort Woman stuff. Right. Um, I think, uh, yeah, either Chelsea or Gabe will be this week. Right, so those are uh, episodes that you can get if you sign up. A lot of them we end up putting up for free, but, you know, you should support the show anyway. Um, Okay, well, thank you. And and Tammy, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Okay.